You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 12, episode 7. So far on this season of the podcast, we've touched on aspects of art and identity, such as how place impacts our sense of self, how changing circumstances and a growing family impacts our identity as artists. We've talked about the rise or disappearance of fame, the legacies of our heritage, and the shifting identity of a culture. Today on the podcast, we're going to continue this discussion of art and identity by looking at the vital role of our relationship to our bodies. Why is it important that we honor and understand our bodies, and why is having a right relationship to our bodies imperative to the quest of art and knowing our true selves? My guest today is Associate Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary, David Taylor. David Taylor has long been a voice and an advocate for the arts within academia and faith context. In 2016, he produced a short film on the Psalms with Bono and Eugene Peterson. His previous books include Open and Unafraid, Glimpses of the New Creation, Worship and the Formative Power of the Arts. You may also recall my previous conversation with David from season four of the podcast, which I'll link in the show notes of today's episode. Today, David and I discuss his latest book, A Body of Praise, Understanding the Role of Our Physical Bodies in Worship. I'm your host, Stephen Roach, and this is the Makers and Mystics podcast, exploring the intersections of art, faith, and culture. David, thank you so much for joining me on the Makers and Mystics podcast. It's a joy to have you back on the show with me. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's, it's awesome to be back on. <laughs> well, I'm excited to talk with you today, primarily about your new book, A Body of Praise, Understanding the Role of Our Physical Bodies in Worship. And I'd love to know why this book is important for this time and what prompted you to write it? Yeah, you know, I, I have been an academic for 10 years and I was a pastor for 10 years. And over the last, you know, 20 some years plus some years in school, I've observed that, let's just say, generously speaking, <laughs> generally speaking, <laughs> most Christians in North America suffer from either a deficient theology of the body or a defective theology of, body, mm. of the body. And it has real world implications. Uh, it has real world damage that it does. Um, a faulty um, or a false theology of the body. And I would like to offer some hope. I would like to offer a compelling uh, vision for the body. I'd like to offer a cogent theology of the body. I'd like to show the real world implications for why um, our thinking and practice of the body matters. And I think maybe most acutely this shows up in my chapter on ethics, where I explore the bodies of those with a range of disabilities, um, racial type issues that come into play, the color of our bodies, and then digital bodies, as it were, right? Mm -hmm. And we've seen over the past seven years how all three of those issues have surfaced and not just 
in ways that uh, uh, involve reasonable agreement or disagreement. They've involved violence. And so I think there's a great deal at stake in how we think about our bodies. And to the extent that corporate worship, which is to say when Christians gather on a regular basis to do this thing that they called corporate worship, public worship, you know, liturgical worship, you know, whatever tradition, you know, maybe yours and the language that you use, it is the one place that Christians have most in common. And it is the one place that is most formative in how Christians have thought about the bodies and, and have done things with their bodies for centuries. And so this book is an attempt to offer a, a, a like a, not an exhaustive, but somewhat of a, what I call like a helicopter overview of the landscape, which is why I have chapters on history and theology, Bible, but also science and art, ethics and so on, because I wanted to help readers see it from different angles to see how it comes into play um, for us as individual Christians, but also as a community of Christians. So I think those are some of the things that come into play primarily, why I think the book matters, uh, why I wrote it. Well, 25 years ago, I wrote, um, a thesis in seminary in which I explored the theological significance of Jesus's healing miracles. And at the end of that year's worth of research and writing, I discovered that I took the body far less seriously than Jesus did. Wow. And I've been haunted by that fact in all of my writing and teaching. So yeah, mm -hmm. maybe for starters. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. You know, I think I mentioned to you before that this season on the podcast, we're focused on the relationship between art and identity. Mm -hmm. And so this subject of the body just ties beautifully into that because the body is such a part of how we identify ourselves. And you talked about wanting to cast a vision for the body. I'll, I'll bring up something you said in the introduction of your book. You made the statement that our bodies are to become sacramental sites for holiness so that we might become holy ourselves and a blessing to our neighbor. So I'd be curious to know more about this idea that our bodies are to be made a sacramental site and how that enables us to become holy mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. I, I think in using that language, sacramental, and I, I use it very specifically and I try to use it carefully uh, because it, it can get a little bit, you know, wild and wooly, <laughs> what exactly <laughs> meant by Sacramental, I have something that I'm pushing up against, and then I'm having something that I'm proposing positively to the reader. Negatively, I'm arguing against the idea that our bodies are neutral, that they're just this neutral uh, vehicle or vessel. And it doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies, because what really matters is our heart and mind of what we think and what we feel. I'm arguing against that. I'm arguing against the idea that our bodies are something that we possess or that we own and that we are free to do with as we wish or will. And positively, I'm arguing that our bodies uh, belong to the body of Jesus and that by the power of the Spirit, mysteriously, mystically, <laughs> we have been incorporated into Jesus's very body and thereby no longer freed to do what we will as we wish, when we wish, how we wish with our bodies. Um, our bodies are now belong to something greater and truer, ontologically speaking, and that's Jesus's body. And positively, I guess I would say, the reason why I find the language of sacramental helpful is because I think it, it gives language to the ways in which our bodies are A, 
a sign of the life of God. They are a picture of the image of God, and they are a taste of the grace of God. And so it is in and through our bodies that we become these ambulatory tabernacles where people get a chance to see and to hear and witness and taste and touch, as it were, the very body of Jesus, which I think <laughs> is something, again, that we've discovered tragically over the last number of years uh, in as much as the bodies of Christians <laughs> have not borne a faithful resemblance to the body of Jesus. And that has caused many, many young folks in particular to walk away from the body of Christ, which is to say the church, or they have walked away from the very body of Jesus, the faith. And so um, to the extent that we are willing to reckon with and then enter into fully the reality of, of all that our bodies signify, they play a positive and active role in the discipleship or the sanctification or the formation of our human life. Um, so th that would be, I guess, the main idea that I would be proposing uh, to, to the reader. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting because on the one hand, you know, we could say that the Christian faith is perhaps the most embodied religion in the world. You know, the entire faith mm -hmm. rests upon the idea of word made flesh, you know, and yet historically, we've not always rightly related to our bodies, which you're pointing out. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we've not always understood the role of our bodies in worship mm -hmm. or in, you know, in, in general. And in your book, you talk about how Christians have feared, distrusted, or despised the body even, mm. but you're arguing for an understanding of the body as a meaningful way to engage God in worship. So tell me how trusting and honoring our bodies aids in a healthy spiritual practice. Yeah, maybe for starters, I would begin with the idea that God in Christ is this icon of care-filled touch. And you could say in the very beginning, in the formation of the human creature, we are handled with care. You know, there's that language of God manipulating, you know, dust, uh, mud. And uh, it, it is the image of a loving and gracious crafter. Uh, and out of that loving, gracious, care-filled handling of earth, human beings <laughs> come in, into being. Uh, and in Jesus, we see one who is himself care-filled uh, in his mother's womb. Uh, he experiences this comprehensive care-filled touch of his mother. And then he plays out that, <laughs> that experience in the womb, as it were, in his own life and ministry. And I, I think in his life and ministry, bears witness to us and bears witness over against all the ways that we have mishandled one another's bodies, mishandled our own bodies. One of the assumptions of the book is that the, the negative or deleterious effects of sin is that it causes us to become alienated from our own bodies and the bodies of others. It causes us to harm our own bodies and the bodies of others, and it causes us to want to flee or to dissimulate, to pretend that we are something that we are not. And Jesus is the one who's in the business of helping us to become at home in our bodies. So what we do with our bodies 
at all times, you know, in, in every sphere of our, of our lives matters. But in worship, standing uh, is not simply something we do because, I don't know, I guess there is a Bible verse that says stand. <laughs> Christians have stood, you know, throughout the centuries. But standing is a way to symbolize sort of honor and respect. And it's a way to say that I stand in attentiveness to the voice of the one who is alive and at large here in our midst. So to sit slouched with my arms crossed is a very difficult posture uh, in which to experience that kind of attentiveness, the same way that kneeling or prostrating uh, or silence can be a way of orienting our body or disposing our body to be able to really listen at greater depth uh, to the voice of the Spirit. Uh, to our own bodies, to a voice of what may be happening around us, in the same way that I would say that exuberant praise, uh, that the maximal expressive you know, use of our bodies is a way to enter into the maximalist praise of all of creation. And it may or may not have anything to do with our personality type, or whether we are introverted or extroverted, or whether we feel it in the moment or not. So much of our lives, uh, relationally speaking, uh, possibly also occupationally speaking, involves things that we do with our bodies regardless of our personalities. And it's not that God does not love to work in and through our personalities, but when I got into a fight with my wife uh, a few weeks ago and we were trying to reconcile and come to some clarity and at the end of this you know, spirited <laughs> conversation, <laughs> I tell her with my words, you know, we're going to be fine. We're going to be okay. But my arms are crossed. I'm not giving her eye contact. My body's held against her. And she's like, I hear what you're saying, but your body is saying the exact opposite. Uh -huh. And so then I actively move my body three steps forward. I uncross my arms. And then I did that terrifically difficult act of getting eye contact with one who had kind of, you know, hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> and then she said, okay, I feel seen and heard because your whole self is attending. Yes. And I think that plays itself out in our gathered worship week after week. What we do in our bodies can reshape, reform our thoughts, our feelings, our wills, the way that we conduct ourselves in the world. That's a beautiful image. You know, I've had several choreographers on the show before, and they've talked about the poetry of the body mm -hmm. and the language of the mm -hmm. body and how even movement mm -hmm. speaks a language, you know, and Right. I think that's a very important thing. And e even talking about the historical church, you know, uh, Gnosticism it was kind of the first place where it seems like this move away from the body. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that the church historically also pushed back against yeah. that. So I think right. it, it really is within the DNA of the faith mm -hmm. to, to be an embodied mm -hmm. uh, expression of worship, you know? Right, right. Well, one question I have as we're talking about this language of the body and why uh, honoring the body and understanding our bodies is important, mm. I'd love to know why having a right relationship to our bodies is imperative in this quest that we're talking about art and identity. Why is having a right relationship to our bodies important to know and understand our true selves? Yeah, so maybe I could just use examples from my chapter on ethics. I start that chapter by talking about two kids in our congregation, uh, mm -hmm. Henry and Layla. 
Henry um, has Down syndrome. Layla is what's called a swan, which is uh, a syndrome without a name. And we're a liturgical church. We're an Anglican church. So there's a lot of uh, prescriptive movement of the body, things that we do, standing, sitting, kneeling, that just part of um, sort of the regular movement of, of our worship. And I have wondered to myself over the years what it's like for them with intellectual and physical um, challenges or disabilities, um, that they can't enter fully into the sermon. Um, they can't maybe enter fully into the Nicene Creed, the, the confession of the creed. So what are the places that our congregation needs to offer hospitality to folks with all, all kinds of challenges? Uh, you know, those may be more sort of obvious, but all of us maybe come with some kind of disability. We have a, a woman in our congregation who is close to 90 and she's in a wheelchair and there's not much that she can do with her body, but she's there, right? So how can we offer hospitality um, and not assume that the way that we do things in our bodies is quote unquote normal? I think conversely, the question is what gifts might those with a, a range of disabilities offer to the body of Christ? How might they question our ideas of a beautiful body or a good body or a normal body, how might they invite us to embrace rather than to reject the vulnerabilities that our bodies and you know entail? That at some point, if you live long enough, you will be as vulnerable in your body as you were as an infant and you will need total care. And how can we not be ashamed or embarrassed of that vulnerable neediness and instead see it as a, um, a vehicle for the grace of God to uh, show up in our lives? Or how might Layla and Henry bring to our attention the, the goodness, the necessity of a multi-sensory worship, uh, a multimodal worship? That is, they may not be able to comprehend intellectually, rationally, the, the fine you know, points of a sermon, but they understand something in their bodies intuitively by virtue of the sort of the kinesthetic nature of our liturgy. They understand what happens when you go low in your body. They understand what, what happens when you go high. Layla is 13, 14, 15-ish, and she was one of our crucifers. And uh, so she would carry the cross, process it in, and she didn't have a lot of strength. And so we had crosses of three different weights. She carried the, the wooden one. And it was kind of a wobbly walk, but it was really beautiful mm. for her sake. Like it was a beautiful way for her to participate actively. But also, again, maybe she became an icon of how it is that God gladly meets us in all of our weaknesses, all of our dis disabilities, all of our um, limitations in our humanity, in our particular humanity. And so I think some of those things I, I, I wrestle with. I, I, I wrote about it, but I, I don't feel like I have arrived. I, I still find it to be a tension. And again, the rest of the you know that chapter talks about like the colors of bodies and and what we think is normal and our traditions and and like musically, uh, we may think certain things are. Uh, normal of how we move our bodies. And um, I'll just maybe one last example. It, it, when Christianity became legalized in the early fourth century, and in those early you know centuries of the church, it was the Church of Rome that gave primary leadership and began slowly but surely defining the worship of Christians throughout all, say, 
you know, the European <laughs> um, sphere and beyond. Um, but those who were in leadership in the Church of Rome largely came out of, let's just say, social elite societies or class systems where they regarded dignified, solemn, um, measured movement of the body as equivalent to truly reverential, truly faithful. But that proved to be damaging to the African continent, uh, where Christianity was also very early on a, a thriving, you know, part of the Christian world. Um, but in the Catholic history, and then of course Protestant, Protestantism, you know, beyond that, um, either was ignorant or actively rejected the more expressive physical uses of the body that were culturally normative or culturally welcomed in certain parts of the world. And in the name of Jesus, in the name of the church, in the name of the Bible, um, a, a certain cultural prejudice um, was cemented uh, and proved has proved to still this day to be damaging. So I think all these things kind of just give us little images of why it is <laughs> that how we think about our bodies and how we embody our bodies, uh, how we enter into our bodies, again, uh, bumps us up against maybe some faulty um, theology, uh, faulty understanding of who God is, God in Christ by the Spirit, but also has real-world implications for how we are body um, in our own individual bodies, but bodies together in our communities, and then how we as individual communities are in relationship to other communities where bodies may look different or, you know, mm -hmm. move differently. Mm -hmm. so I think these are the things that mm -hmm. come into play. Yeah. As you're talking about communities of bodies and, and communities of people, of course, it makes me think of the past several years and the impact of the pandemic and you know how that has impacted our need mm. for corporate experiences and for physical nearness. You know, mm -hmm. the, the isolation that so many of us have experienced has been detrimental. I know even in my own life, um, mm. it, it had some, some pretty negative effects on me. How can we move past those negative effects of social isolation, mm. and uh, what are you, what are your thoughts on that aspect of physical nearness and the embodiment? Yeah, um, at the beginning of my book, I talk about how my aunt died uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, and we were not able by law <laughs> to travel to Georgia to participate in any kind of funeral for her. And that was really difficult for my father uh, because there's no closure. There's no um, opportunity for his own body to see and to touch and to listen and to, to be hugged and embraced and held as he processed his grief. So I think a lot of his grief is, uh, maybe it's not stunted, it's just, um, metastasize in some way mm. it's it, it's lost inside of him something is not at home in his own body in his own heart and mind because he did not have this opportunity for this corporate and corporeal experience of lament grief and then the rituals involved and the burial of the dead and the scientists at the time of the pandemic talked about this phenomenon which they they coined or nicknamed touch deficiency syndrome Mm. which is the same kind of damage that a baby experiences who is not held in a loving and consistent way when they are, you know, um, 
coming out of the womb. Um, there's a wilting, there's an enervating uh, effect. There's a depressed, a depressing effect. We feel a loss of vitality. And I think that explains a lot of the depression uh, that many yeah. of us felt and struggled to name or struggled to feel validated. Uh, I think a lot of Christians felt that they should have been stronger. Um, that God is with me everywhere, therefore I should be fine. But the fact is that God has not designed us as human beings to subsist in that kind of radical isolation. I think sort of the the demented effect, you know, the, the compounding demented effect of the of the pandemic is that it, even though we craved, you know, community and 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 meaningful positive touch. Uh, many of us got used to that isolation, got used to doing it on our own, and then that sort of turned into this negative inertia to return to community. It was just more convenient to stay at home. Um, and in my chapter on the sciences, I, I talk about how scientists describe what happens to human beings neurally and physiologically when we seem together in the same physical space that it has this uh, neural coupling effect, that it binds us, that it taps into a whole range of hormones that forge in us a sense of at-homeness, a sense of belonging, a sense of kinship, a sense of being, uh, being um, of well-being, uh, which I think it, it explains the reason why Taylor Swift's concerts are so massively popular in addition to you know other music festivals people are craving that embodied communal experience because something happens yes a lot of people don't have language for that scientists do and so i take advantage of all the scientific research to help us understand why it is that there is this non-substitutable power uh, forging a sense of at-homeness in our own selves but also kinship belonging when we sing together or move our bodies together and I think church leaders, ministry leaders have this tremendous opportunity perhaps to reimagine or to infuse a freshness into how we experience that together. Maybe there are some mm -hmm. things that we could let go of um, that we used to do, we, we quote unquote always did. But what if there were fresh opportunities for meaningful shared silence? Mm -hmm. uh, what if there are opportunities for meaningful shared noise, you know? Psalms say, make a joyful noise. There is like, mm -hmm. there is scientific evidence that backs up the positive endorphin rush that we experience at a sporting event when something happens and we all leap and our bodies are <laughs> fully like given over to this joy and we're yelling and we have this sense of, yes, it is great to be alive. Well, might that not also be a wonderful opportunity for us in corporate worship? So those are some of the things that, that come to mind on that question. Oh, no, that's really good. That's really good. It actually ties into what my next question is regarding the arts. And, mm -hmm. you know, as you're talking about, you know, Taylor Swift concerts <laughs> and, and corporate singing and just mm -hmm. coming together, you know, the, the arts really do facilitate community and really do facilitate coming together. I'd be curious to know, in in your view, why the arts are important. And maybe you've already begun to answer that w yeah. a little bit, but you know why the arts are important in this discussion of right relationship to our body. And then a follow up question, you know, how the arts can facilitate healthy relationship to our bodies. Yeah, 
I, I think one of the fundamental gifts of the arts is that they bring us into an intentional and intensive experience of the aesthetic dimension of our humanity. And I explain that in the book, but by that I mean our sensory faculties, our emotional or affective faculties, our imaginative faculties, and our capacity to generate metaphors as a way to make meaning of the world. Uh, and so all art fundamentally, I suggest, is, is, is metaphorical in nature. It is saying the world is, as it were, like this. And so let's take uh, the experience of sadness. We all have things in our lives, if you live long enough, that cause us to feel sad. So then the question is, how, how does somebody become um, reconciled to their to the grief, uh, handle their grief in a healthy, you know, fruitful kind of way? And there are lots of helps. Uh, the arts are not the only one, but the, one of the things that the arts do uniquely is that they take sensory things as a way to help make sense of senseless things. So Mozart's Requiem is this work of music in a classical musical register that takes a listener on this journey through time, through sort of the contours of grief. And by the end of it, hopefully, a person's entire self, uh, including their thoughts, will have experienced a sense of being at home because this work of music is beautiful or it's a whole. But Mozart isn't the only kind of music. You know, there are spirituals or gospel songs. There's Irish keening. There are all kinds of different musical uh, styles or media or registers that bring us into unique journeys through time of, of making sense of grief and that, that enable all the discordant parts of our inner life uh, to, to find a sense of being at home. And uh, so I think that's, you know, that is the unique gift that art, that's like the thing that art does. If you were to lift the hood of the engine on a work of art, I would say, I think that's what's happening. In the book, I give three examples from the arts. One is seating arrangement as a, a form of interior, the art of interior design and how our bodies are oriented towards one another, whether we're looking at the back of our each other's heads or whether we're like in a semicircle and our, our bodies are inclined, our faces are inclined, or in some cases, you know, like home churches or uh, the choir stalls and cathedrals where you're face to face and how, again, like biblically, theologically, but also scientifically, how our faces are oriented to one another, towards one another when we sing or pray or listen forms our sense of what it means to be together. I talk about a friend of ours, Laura Jennings, who we hung work of hers a number of years ago in the church that I pastored. And her work, the, the style of her work was like abstract expressionist. And the subject matter was the victims of war violence and the Dalits of India, so that lowest class. And the style of the work was difficult. It was not realistic. Uh, and so it required a lot of careful looking and, and some informed looking. Uh, and the subject matter was difficult, uh, perhaps upsetting. But as I explained to the congregation at the time, I felt like this is part of the work of discipleship that the arts can do. It can retrain us how to see 
the world. Uh, in, in being trained to see the artwork, we are simultaneously being trained to see our neighbor in love and to reckon with all the ways in which violence is done to our neighbors or subjects that cause us to be uncomfortable. They're at the heart of the, of the gospel. They're at the heart of the book of Psalms, that they're inviting us to reckon with it rather than to turn away or to hide or pretend it, it, you know, it doesn't matter. So I think that that kind of artwork was very powerful for us. And then I write a little bit at Link about the, the shakers and how dance and movement, physical movement was so central to everything they did. Mm -hmm. And their dance was both an expression or a manifestation of an overflow of emotion, but dance and movement was also, regardless of emotion or feeling, it was a way to form or cultivate right feelings or right thinking or right, you know, relating. So those are some of the examples I have in the book and they're a blast. And I dedicate the book to dancers because I've, I have a, a a soft spot in my heart for dancers. I think they're the best, but don't mm -hmm. tell don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel the same way. Absolutely. Well, you know, speaking about dance specifically, I wanted to bring Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Dancing in the Streets, A History of Collective Joy. I wanted to bring that into our conversation. Mm -hmm. um, are you familiar with that book? I am. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, that book for me has been very transformative. I've, mm. I've read it multiple times over the past several years, and it's just really fascinating, uh, some of the research she's done. But she talks about the dancing church of the Middle Ages. You were just mm -hmm. talking about the Shakers and, mm -hmm. and what a part of their expression dance was for them. Well, the, the Middle Ages seemed to to have a dancing church as well, but then there was also a particular time when all dancing was squelched or a lot of the dance mm -hmm. was squelched mm -hmm. uh, out of church expressions. And in fact, um, some well-respected church leaders during that time had some very critical things to say mm -hmm. about dance. Mm -hmm. And you might wanna fact check me on this, but I have uh, seen some research that kind of indicates that the pew was invented in part to restrict physical movement in the services, which mm -hmm. I thought was a fascinating you know, realization. But right. my question here is, why do you think there's been such a tug of war over the physicality of our worship and over the body within the church? You know, And this, this fascinates me primarily because the church is called the body, right. and yet we've been very reluctant about the body. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I write all throughout the book about dance, uh, because it is the most obvious form of, of, of bodily movement. And church history has an uneven record when it comes to dance. And I write a bit about the place of dance in the medieval church. I think one of the things that's important maybe to keep in mind is that the kinds of ritualized dances that marked um, the worship life of medieval Christians largely took place outside of like the mass, um, like corporate worship itself. They were like para-liturgical kind of mm -hmm. components. And it's not to say that dance as such was uh, denigrated. It, it's simply that it occupied these complementary spaces uh, to worship. Unfortunately, human beings are, 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 are broken by sin. <laughs> and so excesses, you know, always come into play. Um, they always have, you know, St. Paul drew attention to some excesses. <laughs> uh, the prophets drew attention to excesses. 
every generation, you know, has to address them. I would argue against the idea that the solution is to, you know, smother or squelch or, you know, rid the the worship life of the church from dance. I, I think there's a way, rather than muzzling dance, we're harnessing it uh, as a way to say this powerful creature <laughs> called dance has a powerful role to play, but it's not a free-for-all, but it's not a muzzle. And um, unfortunately, you know, Christians have been burdened by bad exegesis, bad readings of scripture, bad readings of specific texts, like uh, the language of a body of death that shows up in Romans 7, or the language of, fr- of the flesh, uh, or Jesus' comment that the flesh counts for nothing. So in the book, I'm, I'm definitely offering fresh counter readings you know, to these texts and saying, mm-hmm. in as much as we've gotten these texts wrong, they have then translated into pretty poor attitudes towards bodies in general, dance in particular, and the bodies of women, especially, uh, to the mm-hmm. extent that women have been associated with like the emotional, the affective, the expressive, by virtue of giving birth, like being intuitively in tune with their bodies. And men have historically, you know, been thought to be like the more rational, the cool. And I think that's pretty bad, bad, bad theology, bad anthropology. And we have to, every generation has to resist those, you know, tendencies, uh, you know, whether it's like in the contemporary uh, idea, you know, 20th century, that boys don't cry. I think that's pretty... Pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> it's been very damaging uh, to mm-hmm. communities. It's been very damaging to women, to, to men, and to women. And so we have to fight and resist these this kind of mentality and invite a more faithful reading of scripture, a more faithful understanding of who the Triune God is, and then a more faithful practice that that also honors the cultural contextual nature of worship. That we don't need to expect or assume that every Christian in every part of history and every part of the global world will use our bodies in the exact same way. Mm-hmm. But I think there are some things that are fundamentally true and good about the movement of our bodies. Mm-hmm. And I think Barbara's book, you know, brings to our attention in, in very wonderful, colorful, specific ways, the manner in which, uh, you know, the dancing body has been both revolutionary over against, you know, false, um, you know, cultural systems, but has also been reformative. So it's not overturning an entire system in the way that maybe revolutionary acts do, but it has been more of a slow, steady reforming of the ways that, you know, Christians have been in their bodies together. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And in the 20th century, you've had various sort of swells of movement of dance, you know, showing up in the, the worship life of the church. And my hope is that in, you know, reading my book, there'll be a sense in which we can kind of have a, a, a steady way forward of welcoming all manner of movement of our bodies. Mm-hmm. Well, I just have one final question for you today. And this one veers away from the topic of a body of praise. And it just goes into a more general question regarding the arts. And, you know, 
I know that you have worked in the realm of faith in the arts for many years now. You've you've pioneered some beautiful things in the world of faith and art. And uh, one, I you know maybe I should take the opportunity to say this. I just honor you for the work that you've done for artists of faith. You know, over the past decades, you know, it's a it's it's a, a beautiful contribution. And you know, we're standing on your shoulders oh. in many ways <laughs> as we're as we're doing these things going forward. Yeah. But I, I'd be curious to know, hmm. you know, what do you see happening in the world of art and faith hmm. right now? What do, what hmm. do you see as perhaps some of the greatest challenges for artists today, hmm. as well as what do you see as perhaps our greatest leap forward hmm. uh, that we've taken since you first began working in art and faith? Yeah, you know, I first began exploring the place of the arts within a congregational setting in the summer of 96. So it was after my first year of seminary, and I was fortunate to land in a church that that welcomed this experiment with the arts. And then eventually <laughs> I, I served full-time in that church. So uh, I don't have comprehensive, you know, sense of things. I, I know other people who have very wise, you know, perspectives on things that are happening across the global church. And I'm really grateful for their insights. So maybe my insights are more limited to like North American context. And so I would say two things that catch my attention over the last 20 years, maybe more specifically 10 years, is we've seen an increase of grassroots initiatives with the arts, um, you know, uh, church specific, um, parachurch, um, not not for profit kind of initiatives where Christians, you know, have maybe started an art center in a city that's not explicitly Christian, but it is undergirded by a, vi a Christian vision, you know, for the arts. And I am really uh, excited and encouraged by how uh, all these very robust grassroots initiatives have uh, emerged over the past decade. We have uh, simultaneously seen a decrease in organizations that have what I would call um, convening power, which is the ability to draw Christians, artists from across different ecclesial lines, theological lines, political lines, cultural lines. Um, so Mako Fujimura, you know, he had the initiative with the uh, um, I Am International Arts Movement and these encounter uh, conferences, and th that had the power to draw people um, across many different, you know, say church lines. Um, Christians in the visual arts had that capacity. They just shut down this past spring. So we have a decreasing. We have a, a, a more of a decentralized kind of uh, approach to the arts, uh, you know, culturally contextual uh, initiatives. I think that's wonderful. I think maybe the dangers that each of them possess is the danger of all sorts of grassroots initiatives is the danger of tribalism, um, that all these grassroots communities don't know about any other, you know, communities that are doing things. And perhaps it makes it easier to define oneself over against, you know, others, or you hear whispers and rumors of other initiatives and you, you might find yourself perceiving them with suspicion. And I, I think that that's maybe the loss that we've experienced with the loss of these large organizations that have the ability to draw Christians, you know, uh, together across lines. But I, I would say w w 
uh, you know, the danger of too many or too few, you know, large organizations is that they overdefine things for the local. And so uh, uh, that, that is the danger of that, you know, is there's the, the, you know, the, the multinational <laughs> organization that says, you know, here's like the, the blueprint and, you know, everybody should do it exactly like this. And I think that flattens the uniqueness of the local. The last thing that I've noticed over the last 20 years, especially, is that there's a less need that Christians feel for organizations to help them with their craft, with with honing their craft, because they are they've more Christians, more young Christians feel greater freedom simply to go to art school. And they don't need to justify that decision anymore in the way that previous generations maybe felt. But at the same time, there is a, 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 an increase, a deepened hunger for relational and communal connection. So fewer Christians feel the need for an organization to help them hone their craft or to become an actual practicing, you know, artist. But they, but they have not lost, and and they maybe feel even more acutely the need for community, because perhaps they go to art school, undergrad or an MFA of one sort or another. And they're the only Christian in that department. And then they feel their isolation very, you know, uh, intently, and they need that community with others. So I think, you know, Makers and Mystics is an example of a, of a you know, an initiative that is meeting a very, very real substantive need for community. So I think that's interesting to me. Um, and I look at it in kind of larger historical trajectories. And I think well, there's nothing really new under the sun. Um, but there are some wonderful opportunities for our time, you know, to, to press into these things and, uh, and perhaps to welcome, increasingly perhaps welcome more purposefully the voice of the global church, you know, how artists you know, in different parts of the world are exploring things. I think there's a lot of wisdom that, you know, they could offer us in North America. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. A lot for me to think on there. Well, as we go, tell us quickly what's next for David Taylor. Well, I actually, I am on sabbatical this fall. Uh, so I'm relieved of, of teaching responsibilities. And I will begin writing a book that I have wanted to write for a very long time. And it's on the vocation of artists. Wonderful. So I, I, I teach a course at Fuller Seminary on the vocation of artists. I have, you know, talked about it in many places. I have files that are hidden deep in my, on my computer hard drive. <laughs> and I'm really excited to begin writing that book. So that's what's next. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I look forward to that one. We'll have you back on the show when that one comes out. <laughs> David, thank you so much for joining me today, for spending this time with us, for sharing your wisdom and insights. And uh, we'll put links in the show notes of this episode so people can connect with you and pick up your book. And uh, wish you the best, man. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Stephen. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. If you've been inspired by today's episode, please consider showing your support by heading over to patreon.com slash makersandmystics and join our creative collective. Your generosity enables us to continue as a voice and an advocate for the arts. We'll see you again next week. And as always, keep creating. The world needs your art. Mm-hmm.